Okay, welcome everybody to the next session of our SESEC podcasts. Um, and this is about another paper uh, going about uh, rotator cuff surgery. And the title is Dermal Patch Augmented versus Standard Rotator Cuff Repair, a Randomized Controlled Trial. And um, today I'm together with Dr. Gregory Cunningham. He's consultant in shoulder and elbow surgery in the Division of Orthopedics and Trauma Surgery from Geneva University Hospital in Switzerland. Hi there, Greg. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm fine, Greg. Uh, what, what do you think about this study? We have read something about it and in the education committee it was selected as a special paper because it's interesting to hear about dermal patches and uh, especially randomization. Absolutely. So it's... Um... It's a pretty well-designed study because it has been properly randomized in uh, patients who suffer from, uh, let's say, medium to large tears between one and five centimeters tear of the rotator cuff. And they were allocated to just a standardized rotator cuff repair or uh, augmented repair with patch. So we know that patches are trending now, but it's still very costly. And the aim is to see if, does it really help patients? Does it bring an improvement? So there's a lack of, I mean, there's a lot of variability in the, the outcomes that we see today in the literature and a lack of well, uh, properly randomized uh, trials. So this is why I guess this one was selected, right? Yes, absolutely. And they, uh, they collected patients for a four-year period. So four years of radiocast surgery, complete randomization. So in the one group, they uh, did a standard repair. And in the other one, they took a dermal patch and they tested the patients for function after three, six, nine, and after one year after surgery. And they additionally quantified the cuff in MRI. They did an MRI scan 12 months after the surgery and they used the Sugaya's classification and they also assessed for functional scores using the ASA score and uh, the quick dash and also the constant score and the Western Ontario rotator cuffs index. So um, at the end, they had these two groups and uh, they had almost a yeah, similar age. So one was in the, the mean age was 65 years in the other one and 69 in the other one. And the male to female ratio was also similar, a little bit more males and females, so a ratio of 11 to 9. And um, at the end, there was no significant difference between age, gender, tear size, and so on. And what do what did these authors find, Gregory? Well, first, let's point out that they didn't have a very large uh, population sample. They had 40 patients in the final study population, randomized in two groups. However, they, they didn't find any significant difference in the outcome and um, either in PROMS or in retail rates. So the conclusion of the study was that the human uh, dermal patch augmented calf repair did not improve functional outcome or healing 12-month postoperative. So this is, well, I mean, the population is quite uh, small, uh, so which will give a lot of... Uh, discussion in this very interesting podcast i guess i mean many many of our colleagues are asking themselves whether they should use uh, patches to improve the, their repair or if it's just a waste of money 
and um, I'm, I'm very very keen to to listen to what the authors uh, found out, and I think the study will help us to um, yeah to look uh, uh, in the future if these patches can help us or whether they are just something which is only good to lose to lose money and to spend money for uh, a cuff repair. So let's go on. Okay, so uh, thank you very much for being here with us for our next um, podcast session on a topic which is quite interesting for all us shoulder surgeons. And the topic is dermal patch augmented versus standard rotator cuff repair, a randomized controlled trial. And we have the first author, Mr. Priya Darshi Amit from the Royal Orthopedic Hospital in Birmingham in uh, the UK. And we have our um, special expert on exactly this topic, which is uh, Professor Andy Carr from the Newfield Department of Orthopedics and the University of Oxford, also in the UK. And so thank you very much for being here with us. And I have one first question, uh, Amit, which is uh, very simple. So should we use patches for rotator cuff repair or is it just a waste of money? Okay, so uh, yep, thanks for, first thanks for inviting me on this podcast and uh, the question like whether to use dermal patch or not, um, uh, I would start by saying that unfortunately at the stage where the study is, so the study is uh, not yet completed now. We have a couple of patients still waiting for their final outcome data. Um, it's a small number of subjects, 20 patients in dermal patch and their standard group. And we have right now 17 patients in the dermal patch and 18 patients in the uh, standard group. So based on that data, what we have seen so far that patients with augmented patch repair do have slightly better outcome, though it's, uh, um, it's far from a level of significance and slightly better healing rates. However, again, it's far from significance. At this stage, it, um, we are not able to comment whether uh, it, should be, it should be used. However, seeing at uh, um, what data we have and a uh, few more patients to come, it might go either way. If it goes towards level of significance, then I think the um, normal interpretation of this study would be, yes, terminal patch augmented repair is slightly better than uh, standard double row repair. Hence, it should be recommended. However, at this stage, uh, I would say it's slightly early for us to conclude that way. Um, if suppose the results go other way, that uh, what we're seeing right now, it's uh, slightly better for far from level of significance, then I think to prove that point, um, it would be recommended to, to further study for the randomized control trial with a slightly larger number of groups, maybe a multicentral trial to see if that level of significance is achieved. Uh, that would be my easy answer to that. And Andy, what, what do you think? Do, do you use patches? Um, yes, I do. Um, and indeed, my lab develops patches. So I have a, a significant research interest in this area. Um, I have done some trials of patches. Um, and we're just about to start a big UK-wide uh, randomized trial of a, of a new kind of patch, bioactive patch. So I, I have a, a, a real interest in this area. 
what is the key strength of of your of your data? Is it the randomization, Amit? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's prospective. It's randomized control trial, and uh, it's double blinded, and it's then randomization is used with uh, uh, most common use technique of uh, randomization that sealed envelope system, and uh, um, we did have just two patients lost to follow up. So there is very less number of loss to follow up. Um, we calculated powers initially, and we aimed to have 20 patients in each group to uh, satisfy 80% uh, power as per analysis. So um, I think these are the good features, the strength of the study, and more so it's a single surgeon. So in one way, uh, one can say that uh, there is uniformity in the surgical management. Uh, we have had few uh, literature on randomized control trial comparing terminal patch augmented versus standard. However, those papers, such as if I quote one, there was one paper in 2012 by uh, Barbara et al., which compared these two groups. However, um, the criticism of that paper, which I think uh, would be that uh, it, it compared terminal patch augmented with a single row repair. However, uh, if we consider once we put dermal patch onto the rotator cuff tendon and try to bring that patch onto the lateral uh, side with the lateral row anchors, it in turn creates a configuration very similar to a double row repair. So criticism of that paper, which we think that it could be the result, the positive result in dermal patch repair would be could be possibly because you're comparing single row repair versus double row repair along with the dermal patch. So in this, in our surgery, in our trial, we have compared double row repair with a double row repair with dermal patch. So I think this is one of the strengths of the studies that the both both groups have almost similar uh, technique of repair. It's all suture bridge configuration in both the group of repair. So it's not massively different. So in this way, the both groups are slightly similar compared to other studies. So I think they should be counted as one of the strengths in our study. Okay, so... Um, at the end, you conclude that whether you use a patch or you don't use a patch it does not change the, the outcome of the patient after one year, right? Uh, yes, at the level of data which we have right now, we have seen a trend of slightly better outcomes, such as in, uh, um, in one of the constant score. We calculated minimum uh, clinically important difference. So in that score, we observed that 100% of the patients achieved MCID value of constant score compared to 70% of uh, uh, standard group. The level of significance is very close to 0 0.05, so it was 0 0.07. So we think that, I mean, we expect if when we have further five more data, five more patients' data, it might take us to the level of significance in which we would be able to recommend that, oh, yes, dermal patch improves the patient's functional outcome at one year. Um, however, limitation can be brought out of this that we are uh, we are uh, following the patients up to only one year. However, there are a few papers which suggest that though functional outcome may be equivalent or different uh, at one year, it it is possibly that it can change over the two years. So, yes, that's a limitation of our study that we have we have made our follow up just at one year. I think, yeah, further on. Um, the recommendation for further randomized control trial would be to increase the follow-up uh, period for two years to see if the patient still benefit from the dermal patch at two years. Yeah, I see. And Andy, what what do you think about it? About Andy's uh, Emmett's um, 
uh, study. Would, would, what would be your questions? And uh, would these results change? So after one year, both similar, would that get different after maybe two years or three years? I think I think I think it's absolutely the right thing, and and um, um, Amit should be congratulated, and his team should be congratulated on doing a randomized trial. Um, I think without randomization, it's really difficult to know whether one thing is better than another thing. So my my first comment is congratulations on on having set up and run a randomized trial. Um, I think it's the right design. Um, I think there are some questions that that I would perhaps pose. So my experience from running some big multi-center randomized trials in the UK, I ran a big trial called the UCOV trial comparing open, mini open surgery with arthroscopic surgery, um, which we published a few years ago. And I ran a big trial looking at acromioplasty where we treated patients with acromioplasty and, and we, another group had placebo surgery, um, which we published in the Lancet a couple of years ago. And in order to power those studies, we needed somewhere around 300 patients. Um, and so I'm just surprised. I haven't seen your data. I haven't seen the basis of your power analysis, but um, uh, even, and, and you've taken all sizes of tear, I think, haven't you? So you haven't restricted your patients to having small tears or, or, or large or massive tears. So there's a, a real issue of stratification within, within your group. I, I, I guess my real concern with your wonderful piece of work is that there is a risk of, the, of what's called a type two error. And that is, you just haven't got enough patience to be able to demonstrate a difference between them. And that the danger is that you interpret no difference between the groups as being no difference between the treatments. And it's simply a, that you haven't got enough people in your study, enough patients in your study to, 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 to demonstrate whether one thing is better or not than the other. I, I, I really worry that just 20 patients in each group is, is underpowered. Yes, uh, I think I completely agree to that point, um, and I think it's one of the limitations of our study. Yes, we uh, we have recruited all the patients ranging from one centimeter to five centimeters, so all the medium size and large size. Um, though the paper, some papers suggest that uh, more than three centimeter or large uh, large tear uh, have better outcome with the patches, or it was that that the retail rate is slightly higher in large size tears. So yes, that's a valid point. Um, but uh, to conclude, um, we what we see even in small to me small uh, sorry medium to large size tear, what we have seen in our data that even in standard double rotator cuff repair, the retail rate has come out as twenty nine percent, which is not a small amount. So even in medium size tear, we do see twenty nine percent of tear medium to large size tear. So I think yes, we should have. Uh, if we had larger number of patients, we could have stratified as the comparison in the medium-sized tear and then comparison into the large-sized tear. And uh, uh, we did power analysis based on uh, the paper which I quoted earlier uh, by Baba et al. That uh, um, yes, that was again a smaller, small number of patients, and uh, they had uh, they had shown 
somewhere around 40% difference in the retail rate between augmented versus standard repair. Uh, because that was single row repair, then we thought, okay, if we do a double row repair, um, we assume that retail rate would be uh, would be less than that, maybe half of that. So we uh, took we assumed the difference between augmented and double row repair as twenty percent. Based on that, we calculated uh, power analysis, and yeah, it came out as twenty. But uh, yes, it's a valid point that uh, it could come out as an underpowered study. Uh, maybe that's why we just see yeah. a trend I mean, of improved outcome. When you've got such variability in your patient population, when because uh, the two main drivers of risk factors of re-tear are age and tear size. So pretty much every study that's been done, either a trial or, or an observational study, brings out those two features as, as, as being important. And if you're are going to subdivide your patients by age and you're going to subdivide your patients by tear size to see whether or not the patch is working better or not in one of these groups, then our calculations are that you, you need something of the order of 150 patients in yes. each group in order to be able to begin to do that sort of analysis. So I think, I think you know, my, my point is it's a lovely study but I think it's probably just just not big enough. And yes. you know, another aspect of this is that what is remarkable with these patients is that they get better even if there's a retear. And so, you know, you you you've use you've got a thirty percent retear rate, and yet you've got the majority, vast majority of your patients showing significant symptomatic improvement. So patients get better even if there's a retear. So that that's creates a problem with your with your analysis um the other thing is that i'm sure you found the same as we did with with the mri analysis of patients after a repair it's not it's not easy to do it's 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 quite difficult to interpret your post-surgical mris and absolutely no so healed repair and failed repair is a binary. Well, these scans do not produce a binary. It's it's a much more complicated, nuanced thing than that. And and so I think that also introduces an element, I suppose, from my part of a need for caution in terms of interpreting uh, the results of these trials. That the patients are different ages, the tears are different sizes, and and your assessment clinically is confusing because so many people get better, even if there's a retear. And when you look at your MRI scan, it's actually really difficult to interpret your MRI scan. Um, yes, that's a valid point. So I think um, in MRI, as we also know that, I mean, initial, I mean, that's why we we put the MRI um, follow-up at one year because with MRIs, such as like if the MRI is done earlier before one year, it doesn't show the exact picture. Even the healed cuff tendon would have some edema and may turn out as to be uh, may turn out to be torn. I mean, may appear like torn. So that's the reason that we put one year mark, and then we had a blinded radiologist um, interpreting that MRI and grouping them in Sugaya healing grades, so that's zero, one, two, three, four, five. And uh, um, I mean, interestingly, though it's in a small number of series, a small number of patients, um, but what we saw that um, 
uh, if I give you the number, like four patients in uh, out of 17 patients had grade four, uh, grade five Sugaya healing grade. That's um, that's a large tear in comparison to two out of 16 patients in uh, uh, augmented group. So that was like 24% and 13%. I mean, the trouble is with those small numbers, yes, that, yes. that's not significant. And yes. you know, I, one has to be really careful with, with these things. And, and I'm always, you know, very, I come down quite hard on my students when they say that it wasn't significant, but it was trending towards something. You know, the reason we have significance and non-significance is the number of it's either significant or it isn't yeah. and it's unbelievably dangerous to start saying things are trending because that that is producing an interpretation which is which is quite false if i i'm going to make one other point if i bite as well which is in the interpretation of mris it, you can't blind the radiologist because the radiologist will see the patch and so that it, it is incorrect to say that your mris are assessed blindly, uh, that they're, they're not. Yes, and um, maybe the patch, you know, the patch is still at the place where it was positioned, but yeah. it not necessarily means it is somehow healed and yes. the tendon is integrated in the, in the bony structure of the greater tuberosity. Yeah. And one other, other point I found is what I found interesting is... Um, I mean, it was trending, you said, trending better. Uh, as we have heard right, right now, it is, it is not, uh, not wise to say something is trending. But still, using the different types of clinical assessments, we have the ASA score, constant score, um, quick dash score. And if you're using the quick dash, as I saw on your numbers, the quick dash was better in the standard group, so without the patch, while using the other clinical assessment scores, the patch group was slightly better. So this turns out to me, well, it makes a big difference which score you're using and what, you, what your interpretation is afterwards. I mean, you can ask, okay, what's the What's the logic behind that? Do, do you have an idea, Ahmed, why these scores do differ so, so in, in your group? Um, yes, they, they, I, I had a few, um, few observations. So like, uh, yes, you pointed out quick dash. I think it's same as quick dash and constant score. Uh, that is showing slightly different behavior than the ACS score or walk score. I think it may be... Uh, the scoring, when we do a scoring, uh, some components such as pain is uh, given a more weightage of few of their scores, such as ACS score. Uh, pain has got a better scoring than the quick dash or uh, constant score. Um, I believe that could be one of the reasons uh, to, uh, to have different values for different score. Like if you include pain, the um, even if uh, the patient is able to do all the function when the quick dash score is better, uh, while well, because of pain, the ACS score is lower. Um, I, I think that could be one possible reason for this. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And one, one, one thing is what we discuss here always is with a, with a patch, you bring in a lot of foreign material, so the, the surface of the patch and the 
yeah, well, the, the, the surface for adherence for bacteria is much higher. Did you see any differences in your experience with low-grade infections using the patch in comparison to using a standard method? So uh, in all of our patients, we followed all the 40 patients and uh, um, I mean, initial three months, six months and one year follow-up. Um, we never had any uh, such uh, complications in any of our patch patients. I mean, uh, there was uh, a wound has healed completely. There was no infection around the wound. And uh, yeah, we could never say that uh, there was some allergic or immunogenic or any kind of reaction to the patches. So everything was so pretty, pretty sound. So I don't see um, in our patients, nothing like such complication happened. So I think this is a really important point that Robert's made. And, and it's one that concerns me, concerns me greatly. Um, you will, I'm sure both of you remember the Restore patch, um, which was a, um, a porcine mucosal patch, which generated significant immunological problems in, in, in patients. And that only came out some time later. Um, I think one of the difficulties with the issue of safety is that it's quite difficult to tell in small groups of patients, if there is some sort of reaction occurring. And indeed, it's one of the reasons why I've instigated um, a study design where we actually biopsy these patients after using patches. And indeed, I have recently published a paper on this where we found um, significant cellular response, particularly to porcine patches. And so I think the issue of safety of these materials is an important one. And if we're going to effectively judge safety, we might have to consider in the first groups of patients who are treated with these patches, not just relying on clinical assessment, but possibly um, actually getting some tissue to see whether or not there's some, something really bad going on in, in that patient. Um, uh, you know, we all know what's happened with things like metal on metal hips and things like that. And I think there is a, a responsibility really to be certain that, that, um, that, that, that these things are safe. Um, although the decellularization process of these um, either human or xenograft animal materials is pretty good, if you look carefully at all of them, you will find there is cellular material. You will find that there is DNA in them. And so there is, a, there is a risk, and it's not an insignificant risk of an immunological response to these materials. And so um, I, actually, I think the first thing we should be doing is, is, is being certain of safety um, before we begin to look at efficacy as to what, you know, do they actually generate a better, a better heal in, in, in the repairs? And that's a very good point. I, I totally agree, Andy. That's really... Yeah, it's 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 important to look for how they react with the tissue and to conclude our further steps from this. But one que more question, yeah, Emmett, if sure. you allow. Um, you you did, I mean, in your group, you did a randomization, yes. which is easy to choose uh, in a study. But once you have a real-life setting, you have a patient, and you now you have to do a rotator cuff repair. So... When do you decide to take a patch and when do you say, okay, we'd rather do it with a 
classic double row repair. So what's the perfect patient for a patch? Um, yes, if we leave the study which we did, the randomization, in, if we leave that aside and if suppose I'm sitting in clinic, I think the common perception of using the patch or any kind of augmentation uh, technique I think common understanding is that uh, uh, if uh, if the surgeon doesn't feel very comfortable with the tissue quality of the uh, rotator cuff tendon, then he would then uh, okay, perhaps I need to do some augmentation. So in that case, uh, um, suppose if the tissue quality is bad, as in um, we suppose when you repair, you don't get very good hold in your bite, you don't get very good bites in the tendon. If you think that whatever you have put your suture, suture is going to cut through because of the poor quality. And that's when, uh, uh, as a surgeon, you think, okay, fine, he he must have had some, I mean, we must use some kind of augmentation if I had augmentation on shelf. Um, and even previously, if uh, we counseling the patient in the clinic, um, it's likely difficult then to assess whether to use augmentation because uh, we, we are not talking of bridging augmentation so that we can't say if it's too much retracted, like more than five centimeter, I'm going to bridge that with the augmentation technique. We here talking of only augmentation. So I think it may be slightly difficult to judge in the clinic whether to use, a, um, whether to use only augmentation technique or not. Um, I think that's my understanding. Uh, did, you, um, did you randomize in theater? Or yes, that, that, so you- that happened in... In theatre, so your your in, your final decision regarding yes. inclusion was size at the time of surgery. The surgeon said, "Yes, this is a patient having actually judged the, the size of the tear and the yes. quality of the tissue in theatre. I think this is one I'd like to use a patch on." And then you randomised to either having one. Or um, uh, no. So we recruited the patient in the clinic based on the size of tear. So that was our inclusion criteria, any, any patients with size one to five centimeter tear. However, we did uh, final sizing in theater. So once we went into, um, into the shoulder, we measured the size. If it was one to five centimeter, then we say that, yes, it can be randomized. But by then, we had already processed the randomization. The research nurse would have had the randomization result in a sealed envelope. If we, but did you, sorry, did you randomize in theatre then? Or did you, had you randomized in the, in the pre-assessment of the patient? So in the pre-assessment, so uh, we recruited the patient from the clinic and the patients were brought to the pre-assessment in the morning when research nurses did their final prompts and uh, uh, did the randomization there. But we, were, uh, we didn't know about the randomization result unless until we uh, started the arthroscope, we did a diagnostic. When we confirmed that, okay, size is one to five centimeter, it's not more than five centimeter or it's not less than one centimeter, then we, uh, we said final, uh, yes, that, okay, this patient would be into uh, our trial. He will not be excluded. I mean, in that way, we had excluded some uh, uh, 23 patients out of 65 patients which we recruited. So then uh, the research nurse had already done the randomization and she had brought uh, the result in a sealed envelope which opened in theater by the scrub nurse. And uh, yeah, then we knew that, okay, are we going to do a patch repair or, or a simple repair? And mm-hmm. so uh, okay. then if patch, then we went ahead and did a patch. And did, did the surgeon ever see the patient again? Or how was the, was the assessment done by so, people um, not in the operating room? 
Yes, assessment was done by a research nurse every three months and six months and 12 months. So we, we were, as investigator, we were not part of the observer. So observer was blinded. That's great. Very good. That's how you should do it. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, study and wonderful discussion. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, good information for our uh, listeners. And I have one question maybe to both of you. Um, if, we, if we fast forward, let's say 20 years, so 20 years from now on in future, um, will everybody be using patches in calf, calf repair or will patches be something kind of medical history? What, what do you I'm, think? I'm absolutely convinced that the solution to calf surgery is a biological one and that we need to find the right materials um, that are in, induce a biological response in the, in the tendon that is there and the bone that is there. Um, I think they'll be off the shelf materials so that then we're not going to have something so expensive as a, you know, an autologous tendon transplant or something like that. There will be materials that promote a repair response that are both safe and effective and when we're seeing 20% failures even for quite small tears and you know possibly 60-70% failures for larger tears you know if we could bring those failure rates significantly down then I think we would find that our patients had better outcomes both in terms of pain relief but also in terms of the functioning of the rotator cuff. Now I think that means we do probably need to put some further attention into how we assess patients. Um, I, I didn't come in on the discussion about the quick dash, but the quick dash is not an assessment instrument that is appropriate for patients with rotator cuff tears. It's, it wasn't designed for that. I'm not surprised there is an ambiguous result with the quick dash because it's the wrong, you know, it's like assessing um, a game of golf um, with the tools that you use for, for, uh, for scoring football. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the wrong assessment tool. So we need, we need the right technologies, which are bioinductive materials that promote healing safely. And then we need to assess the patients with the right with the right assessment tools. And I think, you know, we should be doing this routinely in orthopedics. And so, you know, every surgeon who's doing this kind of surgery should be putting their patients into a trial. And then rather than having 40 patients, we would have 4,000 patients who are in a trial. And with 4,000 patients as a community of shoulder surgeons, you know, across Europe, across the world, we would have some fantastic answers. Um, to me, the tragedy is not the lack of innovation. The tragedy is the lack of really good, effective evaluation of what we're actually doing using wonderful trials, designs like this one, where we randomize. I think I completely agree to uh, Mr. Carr's point. Um, However, in, in, I see in a multicentral trial, I think um, as, a, as a limitation of that, when we, um, when we start evaluating multiple surgeons, different techniques and uh, a different way of doing surgery and different way of assessing, I think that that may create a variability in the assessment and the final results. So the way 
the way I kind of talk about this and teach about this is I take call back three phases of clinical trials. So your first phase is a non-randomized study where you're judging safety, is this safe, and feasibility. So how do we get a really good surgeon up a learning curve in terms of the instrumentation, the technique? So is it safe and is it feasible? And then your second stage is what's called an efficacy trial, where you take your very best surgeons, your very hand-picked best patients in the best operating rooms, and you see in ideal circumstances with randomization, does this new technology beat what went on before? And then you know this works. But then you have to ask the question, if lots of people in lots of different settings do this, does it still work? And then what you do is an effectiveness trial. And that's different to an efficacy trial. An effectiveness trial is a multi-center study saying when lots of people do it in lots of different settings, does it still work? And alongside that, you run your cost analysis. So you say, is it both effective and cost effective? And then you, you get to the end of your journey of evaluation of this new technology. Safety and feasibility, efficacy, ideal setting, effectiveness, real world setting. Wonderful. This was very, very beautiful. And I thank you very much for having this great discussion. So I think we, we have heard today a lot of uh, uh, good things about uh, your great study, Amit. Uh, thank, thank you very you. much uh, for Absolutely. Congratulations, doing this Amit, and to work. you and your team. Well done. Uh, and uh, just to comment that yeah. uh, um, the study won't be finished without naming the chief investigator of this study. It's Professor Martin Snow from uh, Royal Orthopedic Hospital, Birmingham. So I'm sure we will, we will hear from you, Ahmed, and your study group in the future. And so um, I thank both of you and uh, especially Professor Andy Carr, who was today with us here for this uh, very special podcast on dermal patches in rotator cuff repair. So I'm happy to see you guys in the future in, in person, in the real world. I hope that this this pandemic will be over soon and we can we can have a cool day together. I'll feed us in. I'll feed us in. Well, thank you. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. And okay. yeah, it was nice interacting with everyone, Stika and yourself. Thank you. Okay, Gregory, so... Uh, should we use a patch or shouldn't we use a patch? What do you what do you think? Would you do it? Well, according to uh, Andy Carr's brilliant conclusion, um, maybe not yet, but in the future, I think, uh, as he said, we implant some, some not very well studied uh, biologic tissues in patients. So we definitely need to uh, be very wary about it and do more in-depth analysis to be sure about how it reacts in the, in the human body and if it's a benefit. But at, at the moment, in my hands, I don't see any benefit of using a patch. If the rotator cuff tendons are in too bad shape, 
and either it's no, non-operative treatment or a reverse. What about you, Robert? I absolutely agree. And I mean, this is what the authors tell, that there's no difference. But on the other hand, we have to admit that um, biology is the key solution. I don't really know, but it's interesting to have these studies. And I think this one with the proper randomization will definitely help us to bring more light into this into this place of whether to use dermal patches or not. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye bye, guys. This was the SESAC podcast on the paper Dermal Patch Augmented versus Standard Rotator Cuff Repair with the author Mr. Priyardashi Amit from the Royal Orthopedic Hospital in Birmingham in England and our special guest and SESAC expert on this topic, Professor Andy Carr, head of the Newfield Department of Orthopedics, Rheumatology and Musculoskeletal Sciences at the University of Oxford also in England. My name is uh, Robert Hudek and I hope you like the show and um, stay tuned in because we will come up with a new season very soon.